This is WMPG. My name is Dr. Anne, and this is Safe Space, a live forum for courageous conversations. Tonight is part of our ongoing series about families and mental illness, and I'm going to be talking with Janine Interlandi about the challenges of getting help for a parent with mental illness. Janine Interlandi is a New Jersey-based health and science journalist, and she writes about biomedical research, public health, and environmental science. She is currently a Neiman Fellow at Harvard University, where she's studying global health issues. Janine worked for four years as a staff writer at Newsweek and has two master's degrees in both environmental science and journalism from Columbia. She recently authored an article in the New York Times Magazine entitled, When My Crazy Father Actually Lost His Mind. And it so touched me that I knew I was so lucky to have Janine on my show. Welcome to Safe Space, Janine. Thanks for having me, Anne. Let's start by hearing a little bit about your dad. Uh, Tell me about who he is. What is he like? So my dad is a real character. As I say in the piece, you know, he's a blue-collar guy. He comes from a long line of garment workers. He's a first-generation American, has about 10 siblings, and, you know, grew up in Bensonhurst in the 1950s in a real Italian family in a real Italian neighborhood. Um, Met and married my mom when he was very young, 25, and they've been together for, I think, 46 or 7 years now. Um, and have lived in Jersey for that entire time. So when you say he's a real character, what do you mean by that? He's got this kind of larger-than-life personality. He was always kind of, you know, loomed very large for me as a child. He's very charismatic, and he kind of enjoys being the center of attention, and he's always funny, and he's a real practical joker. I mean, that's the one thing about my dad, always playing practical jokes and and very humorous person. Um, So he's kind of just got that joie de vie that I think a lot of Italian men seem to have. Mm. And uh, he was diagnosed, I know, fairly late in life with bipolar disorder. And I wondered if you might, I know you were away at the time, but I wonder if you might tell me how, how it became clear that he actually had a mental illness. So let's see, in 2005 was the first episode where we had to have him involuntarily committed. And I was away, I was in Alaska um, doing research for my master's thesis. So I wasn't there. My sister and brother kind of had to manage this situation. And what happened was the delusions, and and when we look back, we can see clearly he had bipolar disorder probably for most of his life, but this was when it became so acute that it was difficult to look at it through any other lens. Um, And so, you know, he became very delusional, very paranoid, um, you know, convinced that people were trying to kill him, that people were out to get him, you know, at one point had been saying things about a chip being put in his head. And, you know, prior to that growing up, he had, you know, he would have these kind of periods of darkness or like these little bouts of violence. And it was very easy to just attribute that to alcoholism because he was a drinker. And, you know, what we learned when he was finally diagnosed in 2005 is that the most common comorbidity for people with bipolar disorder is alcoholism because they're self-medicating. So I think all of those years that I was growing up and probably well before I was born, he had been self-medicating with alcohol. And so what was truly a mental illness was actually misdiagnosed alcoholism, you know, for most of his life. But in 2005, the delusions and the paranoia became so intense that you could no longer look at it and just think it was alcoholism. It was clear that something else was going on there. And he had some violent episodes and took off and was wandering and got lost and all of those types of things. So that's when, when we got him hospitalized. And when you found out he had bipolar disorder, what was that like for you? Did that sort of, was it like everything made sense now as you look back or was it, was it really, uh, you know, was it a relief? Was it clarifying? Was it really sad? Was it all of the above? It's become a relief. And this, this thing that's striking to me about it now looking back is that it was a real gradual process of coming to terms with it. You know, and, and I'm a health reporter, and I have a, um, a background in molecular biology, and I, and I write about health, and I've done biomedical research. And even for me, that stigma 
that comes with mental illness, and, and, and I should be someone that's totally, you know, above and beyond that because of the nature of my profession, you know, that, that's a hard thing to, to kind of get over. So I think there was a resistance on my part and, and on the part of my siblings and my mom to, to accept that, that, that it was, in fact, bipolar disorder and to continue to think, you know, for several years that it was really alcoholism and, you know, he's drinking a lot and he's under stress and then, you know, maybe he had some kind of mental breakdown, but it's not bipolar disorder. I want to understand more than the experience of stigma, just sort of inside you, because so here you are, you're, you know, you know about biology, you know that it's an illness, and yet you hear this and your sort of gut instinct is to say, no, no, it can't be that. And how do you understand that in yourself? What, what was it about that diagnosis that made you want it not to be true? You know, I don't know. And I think maybe part of it was just, oh, it's a cop-out because alcoholism is something that you can and I think alcoholics would probably disagree, but there's this sense that if it's bipolar disorder, that it's something that there's not, you feel this kind of hopelessness, there's this sense that there's not much that you can do about it. If we continue to agree that it's alcoholism, then the cure is simple, he just needs to stop drinking. Obviously, that's not the case. It's really hard to stop drinking if you're addicted to alcohol. There's that very obvious fix, you know, and I knew enough about mental illness to know that the cycle of medications and the different things that you have to try and the trial and error of that whole process it's a lifelong thing, and, and, you know, I think I didn't want to come to terms with that, um, understandably. I am no kidding. I understand, too, that you, that growing up, looking back now, you understand they had a bipolar disorder all along. And do you think there were also sort of class issues that played into seeing it as alcoholism instead of as bipolar disorder? Absolutely. So, you know, we come from, as I said, you know, my dad's a very blue-collar guy. We come from a very blue-collar neighborhood. And in that world where I grew up and in that segment of society, alcoholism is actually much more acceptable. It's a socially acceptable thing to have. Blue-collar guys drink. You know, I'm not saying this is true, but I'm saying this is the perception. This is the stereotype. And, and it's, it's like you get on board with that and you kind of live that reality. And, okay, so he's a drinker. You know, he's a working guy. Working guys drink. This is okay. Sometimes he drinks too much. That's not such a big deal. Mental illness is something different. And people from my sphere of the world, they don't go to, to psychiatrists. They don't, you know, take antidepressants. They don't talk about, you know, feelings of depression or isolation. Those are just not things that are socially acceptable, at least in that sphere. I think it's changing a lot in different classes and in different, you know, if I talk to friends that I went to college with or friends that I went to graduate school with, you know, they talk very openly about being in therapy, about having parents that have grappled with depression, et cetera, et cetera. Those are just not conversations that people in my, in my part of the world are having. So there you are. You're, you're away. Your brother and sister are working to try to get your dad care. This diagnosis is being sort of bandied around in your family. Was it hard for you to tell your friends about? I mean, did you find yourself wanting to kind of sit with it quietly for a while, or did you feel embarrassed to share it? Not embarrassed, because I come from a community where everybody kind of knows everybody, and so the the, the problems with my father were not a secret in our town, and and my closest friends are the ones that I grew up with, and so, you know, they kind of know how he is. I think as I came to terms with it and came to accept that it really was, in fact, a mental illness, it was actually surprisingly difficult to convince other people of that. Um, A lot of my friends who saw my dad growing up and knew that he was a drinker thought that same kind of gut reaction of, well, that's some kind of cop-out, like it's alcoholism and you you say it's mental illness because you want to make an excuse for somebody. So that was tough to to convince other people that he actually had this disorder. And and I struggled to convince myself at at the same time, so that kind of made it hard. Um, I see. So as a cop-out, sort of like, well, as a way to justify the drinking, almost as a way to avoid taking responsibility for the drinking. Exactly. And that's part of the stigma of mental illness is like, oh, you know, it's, uh, you're bipolar. Okay, sure. You know, instead of saying you just don't want to stop drinking. 
Um, and I think that's part of the stigma of mental illness. That's one of the ways that, it beca- that's, that it's stigmatized. I see. It's sort of used as an excuse to explain away things I don't want to have to deal with. So I want to fast forward now to 2010 when I know he he had another episode. And I wondered, you wrote this really powerful story about it, but I wonder if you could tell me again the story of what happened and how hard it was to actually get him help. Yeah, so he kind of just spun slowly out of control, started, you know, you notice a little odd behaviors and this and that, and you kind of look the other way or you write it off, you shrug it off. And then eventually he just had like a full-on breakdown and he became violent with my mother. You know, he hit her a couple of times. He tried to jump out of a moving vehicle at one point. Um, He became obsessed with this idea that we were trying to kill him for his money. Um, You know, obsessed with this idea that other people were coming to get him and kept saying he was going to die. And and things that were kind of not making sense, but if you listened enough, you could see this narrative taking shape. And and it was clear that it was very real to him, even though it had no basis in reality. And... um, one day he finally just completely collapsed in a store, and thank God it was the store of a friend, um, you know, a neighborhood convenience store. And the guy called the ambulance, and the ambulance came and got him, and they brought him to the emergency room, and he was just completely violent, and, you know, I think he almost hit an orderly, I think I mentioned the piece, and they injected him with some Haldol, and they put him in the psychiatric emergency screening services. And prior to that, we had spent, you know, two months watching him unravel and kept saying, he needs to be hospitalized. We need to get him committed somewhere. Something horrible is going to happen if he doesn't get hospitalized. He's going to get hit by a car because he's out wandering, or he's going to get into a fight with the wrong person because he's delusional, and this is not going to end well. And the standard for commitment in New Jersey was they must be a danger to themselves or to property. Um, and by danger, it's imminent danger. So he had to literally be, you know, the line is, and, and this is a line that people that go through this, you know, they can quote it. Everybody says the same thing. You have to be kind of standing on the edge of a very tall building, atop a very tall building, ready to jump, or holding a knife to someone's throat at the moment that the police arrive. And if that's not the case, then they can't do anything. They can't put him away. They can't take him to be evaluated. They won't. Um, The resources aren't there. You know, there's a whole bunch of reasons that that doesn't happen. But So you end up playing chicken with the system. You're essentially saying, we want him to do something crazy enough that the authorities will be forced to take, to take him into custody and to bring him to the, the psych screening services, but not so crazy that it ends up being his own death or my mother's death or something like that horrible happens. And, and that's what you know most people in my position end up being stuck with because the, uh, the involuntary commitment standards are so rigid. So you're in a terror. I mean, playing chicken, of course, is a terrifying game. Yeah. And yeah. so the stakes are so high, and there you are desperate to get him in before he does something really harmful to someone Yeah, and, and you find yourself, and it's really morbid because you find yourself at the worst moments. You know, my mom's calling me every day, crying hysterically. She can't, she can't leave her purse alone. She's got to carry the checkbook and the keys around with her everywhere because she's afraid he's going to take the car. She's afraid he's going to take the checkbook. You know, and she's sleeping with one eye open because he's saying, you're going to kill me, I'm going to kill you first. You know, and she's a little old lady, and she's living in complete terror. They're in the small one-bedroom apartment, and there's not a damn thing you can do about it. As the daughter who wants to take care of her family, there's nothing you can do. And, you know, I think I also mentioned in the piece, I felt for so long like we were navigating the system improperly. I kept thinking there's got to be some agency or some place that you call, and you tell them what's going on, and they come in, and they they take them away. And, and it turns out that that's not the case at all. This is the norm, you know, just being kind of stuck with the situation. That's what the norm is. That's not the exception. It's the norm. It was so hard because I can't help but think, you know, back to my own training, working as a doctor in a psyche emergency room. And, you know, and maybe I was in Massachusetts and Maine, and maybe the standard is different. But, it, you know, we didn't require someone to be on the edge of a cliff. If it was clear that their behavior was, was threatening and dangerous, that would be considered enough. 
But maybe different states have a different interpretation of that standard. Is that is that what you're I saying? I think it does vary state by state, but I think the bigger problem now, and I don't know how long ago it was that you were doing that type of work, is it's really a resource issue. Yeah. So if you talk, to, if you get people to talk candidly, you know, the, the screeners and the psychiatrists and the people that do this work, they'll say, like, yes, we know this person really needs to be hospitalized, but we don't have a bed for them. You know, if you look at, like, Vermont, for example, they closed their last state facility, like, when I was reporting this story. So they had, like, zero, literally zero psychiatric beds at that point in time. Um, and, and that's the case all over. It's the case in, in virtually every state. There's just not enough beds. There's not enough doctors. You know, there's just not enough resources to treat these people. And that's why they get stuck on the outside, not because people don't clearly see that the person needs to be committed. It, you know, people that are as sick as my father, it's very obvious. To, you don't even need an MD to understand this. It's obvious that the person is a danger to themselves, danger to other people. They need to be hospitalized for their own protection, but the resources aren't there. So you find other ways around that reality. And as you so vividly describe, what ends up happening is people end up going to jail instead of the hospital. Yeah. And I want tell me a little bit about how things evolved. So what happened with him was went to the screening service after he had that breakdown, got sent to a short-term care facility, and that's what they use now because they're closing all the state hospitals. So instead of going to a state hospital where you say, okay, you're going to be here for a month with one doctor taking care of you and we're going to get you under control, you go to a place where they hold you for about two weeks, and if you're like my dad and you completely refuse all treatment, eventually they'll take you to a commitment hearing and try to get you sent. You have to go to a hearing before a judge where they decide whether or not you can be committed long-term. And if you don't get committed long-term at that commitment hearing, you basically get discharged. And so that's what happened to my dad, and it kept happening. So he would refuse treatment. So he'd have no medicine. He would not be getting better. Yeah. But he would be discharged home no better. Yeah, they would just discharge him to the street. Mm-hmm. Um, they, you know, they would release him. And he hadn't gotten any better. And in fact, the social worker would sometimes say, I think he's actually worse than he was the last time he was here, or he's worse than he was two weeks ago when we first got him, but there's just nothing we can do. The judge says we have to let him go, so we have to let him go. Um, And that's a whole separate story in terms of what went wrong at the commitment hearing that we probably don't have time to get into. But, you know, suffice it to say, they kept releasing him. And so the social worker advised us, Number one, if you're truly worried for your mother, because we were, he was really fixated on her, and that's another common theme of people with bipolar. You know, when, when they do get violent, they tend to focus on one person, and it's almost always a family member. So my dad was really fixated on the idea that he had to kill my mom because she was going to kill him, and that's what he kept saying. The social worker advised us to get a restraining order against him, not only for her protection, but also as a tool, because if, they have a res- if you have a restraining order against the person, then the police have to come to the house, and they have to pick him up if he shows up there, and they have to put him in jail, because the restraining order is not something that they can ignore. So we did that, and it ended up kind of being a savior. We got the restraining order. He violated it immediately. Like, as soon as he got out of the hospital, the first thing he did was went to my mom's house. And she was able to call the police, and she doesn't have to say, okay, he's threatening me, and the cop says, you know, how much of a danger or what's going on exactly? No, we can't do anything about that. Um, She just says, I have a restraining order, and he's violating it, and they come right away. No questions asked. They pick him up, and they bring him to the hospital you know, check him out because he's complaining of chest pains or whatever, and then they take him to jail, and he stays there. And, you know, this was all happening in the dead of winter in January. It was bitter cold, and it was really sad, but I felt like, thank God, okay, this is good. We want him in jail because at least he's not out on the street wandering around in the freezing cold, walking, you know, he was walking down busy highways and stuff, no idea where he's going. I was terrified he was going to get hit by a car or freeze to death. Um, So that ended up being our safe haven was jail. Um, And he cycled through jail a couple of times, and then ultimately he spent more time in jail than he did in the psychiatric facilities you know, while this was all going on. So part of what you're saying here is you had a, a, enormous clarity as a family to, to ha- not only get the restraining order, which must have felt like at some level, even though you were terrified for your mother's life, nonetheless, 
a big step to take. And then for your mother to have the clarity to call the police when he violated it, because, of course, so much of what happens is in the moment. It's hard to call the police on someone yeah. you love who, who would never be violent if they were not ill, you know, who is not yeah. fundamentally violent at all. And these were all hard steps. I mean, you talk about clarity. I think in retrospect, it's, you know, I can speak about it very clearly because, you know, having done the story, I really thought through the process and kind of how what happened each step along the way. But at the time, getting a restraining order against your husband of 46 years who you're passionately in love with and who has never done anything, you know, he never hit you when he was well, it's just that he's sick, being forced into that position where you literally have to stand before a judge and recount every horrible thing he's done in the past three months and get a restraining order against him and then block him, bar him from his own home, bar him from seeing his grandchildren and his children, that's a heartbreaking thing to do, and it's a heartbreaking thing to have to watch your mother do. I mean, I, I think that was probably one of the saddest, most difficult days of all was going with my mom to court to get the restraining order. And then even knowing, you know, saying the clarity to call the police, we would call, we didn't know who to call in the beginning. We learned over time, you know, you would call PES, which is the Psychiatric Emergency Screening Services, and say, well, we don't want the cops to get him. We don't want him to go to jail. We want him to be in the hospital. And they would say, you have to call the police. And then the police would say, you know, you have to call this person or that person. And you get the runaround. And it's not because these are bad people. It's because there's not really a great system in place for dealing with someone that is mentally ill, elderly, has a drinking problem. You know, there's like, there's a multiple things going on there. Mm-hmm. Playing these word games where you have to think about, okay, if you call the cops, just say danger to self or others, you know, or if, you're, if you call the police, say restraining order. If you call the psychiatric emergency screening services, you have to say danger to self or others. There's specific words that you learn you have to use if you want action. So. Right, and of course, all of this is partly because your father himself was not aware that he needed help, not aware that he needed treatment, or, and wouldn't participate voluntarily, presumably. Yeah, and again, another very, very common symptom of bipolar disorder as well as schizophrenia, and, and there's a clinical term for it, and it's called anosognosia. And what it means is that people who have this type of mental illness are physiologically incapable of recognizing that there's something wrong with them. So what they're seeing and perceiving and feeling feels very real and also totally normal to them. You know, if you think someone's putting a chip in your head or your wife of 47 years is trying to kill you for money that you don't have, a healthy person would be like, okay, something's wrong with me that I'm thinking these thoughts, but you're sick. You don't, to you, it sounds perfectly normal. Right, so here is the sort of the crux of the the problem in mental health treatment, which is here's this person who needs treatment but won't get it, and how do we balance his safety, your safety, your, your whole family's safety, with his civil liberties. And this is the tension for every state in trying to parse out these laws. And I'd love to hear how you... Actually, here's what I'm going to do. is I'm going to have you finish the story first, and then I want to get to it. Maybe you can weave it into the story. How you think about this balance between respecting his autonomy, his right to refuse treatment, choose his own course in life, while at the same time knowing that he would sort of come back to himself if he could only get treatment and be not a threat to the people he loved. I'd love to hear how, what, what eventually happened and sort of how you came to terms with trying to balance those two things. Okay, sure. Um, so, as I said, he cycled through jail and psychiatric facilities over a period of months and ultimately just landed in jail, and then that kind of became home base, and he stayed there for, I can't remember how many days I think I had in the piece, like maybe 50 days or something. He stayed there for quite a while. And what happened was, so he's in jail now. Great. He's off the streets. He's safe. We happened to have known a security guard at the prison who was, or the county jail, who was keeping an eye on him. So we knew he was okay and my mom was okay. But then that's it. He can't get out of jail unless he goes before a judge. And he can't go before a judge unless he has an attorney. 
and he doesn't make enough money, or he made he reported on the income sheet that he made too much money for a public defender, so they wouldn't appoint one for him, even though he exaggerated how much money he was making because he was delusional. So couldn't qualify for a public defender. So we had gotten the restraining order against him and then had to hire a lawyer to get him out of jail, which was where he was sent for violating the restraining order. And, and I mean, the absurdity of that kind of really just grated on me as I was dealing with it. But in retrospect, it ended up being the best thing of all because the lawyer was able, he was just a wonderful, wonderful guy, and was able to go to the jail, negotiate with my father, negotiate with the prosecutor's office, and basically craft this agreement, which ends up being our own kind of hodgepodge involuntary commitment thing. So you can come home, we will lift the restraining order, but you have to take your medication, you have to um, complete, like, you know, however many months of psychiatric therapy at the Community Mental Health Center. You know, you have to complete all of these things. And it's one thing for us to bail him out and say, okay, you have to do X, Y, and Z. He's not going to listen. He's going to listen for about two seconds, and then he's going to go do whatever he wants to do. When the threat of jail is hanging over him, he suddenly starts to comply with these things. And as he starts to comply with them and takes his medication and, and sits down with a therapist, he actually got better, and his delusions passed, and he kind of gradually over time came back to himself. Um, Did you have a parole have, officer that was enforcing this? Yeah, there was a parole officer enforcing it, and the lawyer was the one who had brokered the deal. So it took a criminal court judge and an attorney, a defense attorney, to to take care of my dad's mental health. I mean, that's what ended up happening. So it's really striking. And and so he then agrees to take this medicine, sort of against his will, and did it in fact help him? Yeah, it did. It did. And you know, part of it is also timing. I mean. I can only speak for my father's experience, but his episodes really tend to last a finite period of time. You know, they last for, what, three to six months. So part of this was that, and as the, the episode starts to kind of wear off and he starts to come back to himself a little bit, then you get him on the medication and he makes the full recovery. So that was part of what was happening, just sitting in jail for however many days. Eventually he started to kind of come out of it on his own. But the medication and the therapy really helped keep him on the straight and narrow path mm-hmm. and, and helped address the alcohol problems and all of that stuff as well. Thank God he's doing great today and him and my mom are together and everything is good, not good. But in terms of the question about civil liberties, you know, this is, it's a con- involuntary commitment is a really contentious issue for this exact reason. And, and a lot of people who suffer from mental illness are staunch opponents to the idea of having broader involuntary commitment standards or making it easier to put people away against their will when they suffer from these illnesses. And I understand that sentiment. You don't want to medicate people involuntarily. We, we, pl- we place a high premium on civil liberties in this country, and, and rightly so. But I would argue that if someone is so sick that their quality of life is nothing, what good are civil liberties if you don't have that? You know, And uh, for me... I know my dad, and I can look at him and say, there is my dad, and as I say in the story, there's this evil alien that takes over when he's sick. And to me, committing him involuntarily is a way to protect my dad, who I love, from this evil alien that's invaded his body, because the evil alien will gamble away all of his money and hit his wife and divorce his wife and completely destroy his life. And when my dad comes back into his body, everything's destroyed, and, and you can't always take those mistakes back. So to me, it's, it's an act of love. And you're actually protecting the person's civil liberties if you think about it in that way, I feel like. You know, it's about protecting my father from this other thing. This alien, that sort of the illness as the alien. Yeah. Can you have that conversation with your dad now that he's well? Now that he's well, and this is something that, you know, I encourage anyone who's listening to this, who's going through this, to consider if your loved one, if you get them to a point where they're well again and they can talk honestly with you and with themselves about what happened, there's things called, there's, you know, psychiatric advanced directives now where you can have, they can sign an advanced directive much as you would do saying, you know, 
where you don't you want to do a DNR, like don't resuscitate me if this, this, and this happens. You can do that for if I lose the ability to think rationally for myself, et cetera, et cetera, please medicate me against my will, et cetera, et cetera. The other thing is, you know, when the person's well, you kind of just pray that it lasts as long as it can. So, Right. I mean, part of the tricky thing about mania is that so often people don't actually remember what they did yeah. when they were manic. and my dad didn't. You know, when he read the story after I wrote it, there was a lot in there that he did not remember, and I think the piece actually really helped. He said the piece actually really helped him understand exactly what had happened and how he had ended up in jail and, and why there was a restraining order and all of that because he didn't understand it at the time. Did you show the piece to him before you published it? You know, I didn't just because I felt like I have to treat my parents as I would treat any other subject. And, you know, as a rule, we don't let people read the stories that we write about them until they come out and press. You know, we fact-check all the quotes and we fact-check all the biographical information and make sure we've got everything right. A fact-checker does that, but you don't show the story to your sources. And, you know, I had done another story prior to this that was a really personal piece about a family that I didn't know. They were strangers, and, and they trusted me you know, to with this very personal story, this very painful story, and to share it with the national audience and to not see it before it came out. And I felt like it's not fair to give my parents any extra, you know, access that a, a normal source or another source wouldn't get. So, no, I didn't share the story with them beforehand, and I was terrified the day that it came out. I couldn't even bring myself to call my father um, to tell him that it was out on newsstands. I knew my brother and sister would tell him, and I just kind of waited almost nauseous for him to read it and to, to get his reaction. So what was your was, fear of what his reaction would be, Janine? I, I f- was worried that he would feel betrayed. And, and, you know, I had asked him many, many times over the months that I was working on the story. I think like once a week I would sit down with him and my mom and say, are you sure you're okay with this? Are you sure? You know, I have to say that you hit mommy. I have to tell people that you did this. I have to tell people that you did that. You know, is this okay? And they would say every time, yes, yes, it's okay because... They felt strongly that, you know, my mom especially, because she remembered everything clearly, very adrift and very much like there was no place to turn and we didn't get the help that we needed, you know, and even when we went to the hospitals and to various places that should be tasked with these things, they were not the help that we had hoped they would be. And so she felt like if other people know what we went through, maybe it will help them. Um, So they were supportive of it, but nonetheless, I was still terrified the day it came out. You know, I want my dad to feel that I love him, and to, and I wanted that part of the story to come through, and I was worried that it wouldn't for him. I wanted him to see the love and the compassion and, you know, also my sense of apologizing to him that I didn't do better by him when this was going on, and I was worried that he wouldn't pick up on those things, but he did. So. He did. I was going to say, as one of your readers, your love for him uh, shone through the article. It was very moving to me. Thank you. I hope so. And your gratitude to him, you know, for all that he did for you, especially when you were a tiny baby was really very, very touching. That's the thing, and I really I wanted that to be the thing that he took away from it, was that, you know, I love him and feel such gratitude to him for being my father, because um, I'm adopted for people who haven't read the story, and I was born premature and was very sick, and my parents came to a third-world country and adopted me and nursed me back to health, and, and that's something that I carry with me um, in a good way, and I wanted him to know that, and, and he did. He got that. He got that out of the story, so... I'm really struck in some ways, not only at your, but at both of their courage, because what I'm hearing is that they're, they agreed they, to let you do the story, and partly out of generosity. They really hoped it would help others. Yeah, they wanted it to help others. And, you know, also, I'm their daughter, and, and they I've wanted to be a writer since I was a little girl, and I think, you know, they felt like if this is something that's going to be, that you want to do, that's going to feel like a personal achievement for you, then we want to support it in every way we can. Because that's what parents do, right? They do everything they can for their kids. So, Last question, Janine, before we have to stop. What kind of response have you received from readers about this piece? Um, it's been overwhelming. I've gotten 
hundreds, more emails than I've gotten for any story I've ever done, hands down. You know, I think probably like 250 emails. And I think three of them were, you are a horrible person for exploiting your father in this way, and you will burn in hell for it. And the other like 100 and or 248 or whatever were people who are going through the exact same thing and just such horrible stories and, and ones that don't end nearly as happily as mine did. Um, and they were all to say thank you, you know, for for putting it out there. And, you know, a lot of people saying this very, this thing that really resonates with me, which is if you have cancer or your loved one has cancer, people will bake casseroles and pies and they will come and they'll sit vigil with you and they'll call you and email you to check on you regularly and they'll pray for you. When you have a loved one that has mental illness, you go through that by yourself. That's something that happens in a dark, quiet corner and, and there's no casseroles to go with that. And a lot of people said that. And so for that reason, I think... I felt particularly proud of this story because it was a lot of people like, thank you so much because I feel less alone now. And it helps so much to know that I'm not the only one going through it. I know there's no answers and you don't have any solutions, but just thank you for putting it out there um, and for being courageous enough to share, share your own personal story as opposed to just some other random person that you found. So, Janine, on that note, we're going to have to end. Thank you so much for your courage in telling thank your story. Thank you so much. It's been my pleasure. This is Dr. Anne. I've been talking to Janine Interlandi about her father his, and his bipolar illness and their struggle as a family to get him help. Janine wanted me to mention the Treatment Advocacy Center, which is something you can Google, which, which has a lot of information for families about commitment laws and difficulties in different states. That's the Treatment Advocacy Center. I want to thank tonight Jen Hodgson for mixing the sound, Maurice Lennon for the music. Also, if you only got to hear part of the show and you'd like to hear the rest of it, please go to our website at www.safespaceradio.com. You can subscribe there to go get a weekly announcement and with a link to that week's show. You can also look at all 150 other podcasts for former shows. You can download us from iTunes. You can like us on Facebook. Coming up next is The Watchdog.